Uh, if you're visiting with us, um, welcome. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you better. Our, um, our sermon passage this morning, as we continue to make our way through Mark's gospel, is in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. And you see that printed there in your order of service. Um, in 2007, the Washington Post com- uh, conducted a fascinating social experiment in the subway station uh, there in Washington, D.C. Uh, this experiment was, to designed, it was, it was designed to see how well we as people can recognize true beauty and greatness when, it, when we're confronted with it, but we're not looking for it. Um, can we recognize true beauty in common, ordinary places? And so they took this violinist, a musician, and they put him in the corner of the Metro D.C. subway station, and they filmed him playing for 45 minutes. But this was not just any old violinist. His name was Joshua Bell, um, probably the greatest violinist of the time, playing on a violin, a a Stradivarius, I think it's called, um, violin worth $3.5 million dollars from the 1700s. People pay hundreds of dollars per seat to see this man play the violin and fill up opera houses around the world. Um, He can fill up, um, without a microphone, the largest concert venues. He can play pieces that no one else can play. He's got multiple Grammy Awards, 40 different albums. He's incredible. And for 45 minutes, they filmed him disguised with an old jacket, a baseball cap, playing some Bach pieces that no one, hardly anybody else can play these pieces. In the corner of the subway station for 45 minutes, all of these sophisticated, cultured Washington, D.C. folks just walk on by. They miss him. Um, Actually, about six people pause to watch. He makes a few loose coins and change. But they see the greatest person, in, the greatest musician, violinist in the world, playing the greatest violin in the world, and they miss him. They hear the music, and they just keep walking. They were in the presence of real greatness. True goodness and beauty had fallen down into their laps, but they missed it. And something like that is happening in these early stages of Mark's gospel as we've been making our way through it. And it happens this morning in our passage Infinite goodness and beauty in the person of Jesus Christ has arrived on the scene in the midst of the ordinary, humdrum, um, normal existence of people's lives. And the people that should have recognized him don't. They hear the music. They hear the greatest music in the world played by the greatest person in the world. They hear his teaching, they hear the the good news of the gospel proclaimed, and they see his works and his teaching and his healings like no one else has ever seen before, but they don't get it. They don't recognize him, and they miss him. Our passage this morning reminds us that it's possible to be in the presence of ultimate truth and goodness and beauty and to just keep walking, to hear the music and And either to not recognize it and keep walking or to hear it, and even worse, to recognize it and to walk even faster in the opposite direction. It's very possible. What does that have to do with you and me this morning? Let's read and find out. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. This is God's Word. Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, 
He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called, the, he called out to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand and is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you please now come and carve out for us ears to hear and eyes to see you and give us hearts to respond in repentance and faith, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. So our passage this morning shows us what it looks like to miss Jesus, to hear the music, to hear the greatest music in the world played by the greatest person in the world, and to just keep walking. The people that should have recognized him, they don't. The people that should have been trained to, to see him and to hear him, they miss him completely. What do we have to learn here? We as people who are just as capable of missing God's truth and, and goodness and beauty when it's, staring, when it's staring us in the face. What do we have to learn here? What does Mark want us to see? Well, the way I want, us, the way I want to approach this passage is by looking at three things that Mark very, very urgently wants to present to us. He wants us to think about how we evaluate Jesus. He wants us to think about how Jesus evaluates himself. And then thirdly, how Jesus evaluates us. So first of all, we need to think about how we evaluate Jesus. Mark tells us in verse 20 that Jesus returns home. That can be a hard place to return when you're the Messiah. He's been traveling around the region um, but now he returns home to the people and the place that know him the best. And it's here, it's here at home that the, that the temperature reaches boiling point. The, the, the tension and the conflict that's been mounting and mounting in Mark's gospel, it finally reaches tipping point. And the people make a decision. The people decide what they, what they think about Jesus, how they are going to evaluate who he is and what he's doing. But you know, friends, that's the way it always is with Jesus. You have to do something with him. You have to decide what to do with him. With the kinds of things that he was saying, the kinds of things that he was doing, you really can't stay on the fence forever. There's really just a few alternatives when it comes to who Jesus is and what he was doing. Just a few choices that we can make about him. Because Jesus presents us with evidence that demands a verdict. He does now, just like he was doing then 2,000 years ago. A lot has changed in the last 2,000 years, but this hasn't changed. Those people that were watching him and engaging with him and interacting with him, they knew that this wasn't normal. They knew that this wasn't normal. They knew, um, first century people did, just like we do, that people with leprosy don't normally just get better. 
They knew that blind people don't normally just recover their sight. Um, They knew that paralyzed people don't normally just get up and walk. And they knew that normal people don't go around saying things like, I forgive your sins. And I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm the great bridegroom of the feast, the one that you've been waiting for. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand because I'm here. Normal people don't say things like that and don't do things like that. And that's just from the first three chapters in Mark. Um, The people back then, they weren't idiots. They knew that this wasn't normal. There was something incredibly unique about Jesus. But here's the thing. We can't just leave it at that. He's incredibly unique, but he's either, in, he's either uniquely good or uniquely evil or uniquely insane. But there's really just nothing else. There's no alternatives beside those, those three. Those were the alternatives then, and those are the alternatives now. There's no other way to evaluate who Jesus is and what he was doing. He's either right or he's wrong. And if he's right, then he's the hope of the world, and it should change everything about the way that we live. But if he's wrong, then he's not a safe person. If he's wrong, he's either unhinged or ungodly. He's either deranged or, a dem- or, or demonic. <laughs> if he's wrong, he's either out of touch with reality or he's in touch with the devil. But um, there's just no other alternatives. He's either right or he's wrong. Like C.S. Lewis says, a man who was merely a man, just a normal man, would not have said the sort of things that Jesus was saying. And he wouldn't, the one thing you can't say about him is that he was just a great moral teacher. If he was just a man, that he's either a lunatic or, he's, or, or else he's the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse, like Lewis says. And so here... Here, when, Mark, when Jesus goes home, Mark shows us that these two crowds of people who should have known better, they evaluate him in two of those three ways. Uh, and this should stop us in our tracks. Get ready. It should stop us in our tracks because these two groups of people are the two, are the two groups of people that, one, they have the closest proximity to him and the most relational experience with him, his family. And they were the people who were trained to be able to recognize the Messiah when he, when he comes. They knew the Bible so much better than you and I did. And they lived morally, outwardly morally, moral and religious lives. His family and these scribes from Jerusalem. So first of all, let, let's start with his family. Verses 20 and 21. It says that these are the people that are the most, these are the people that are most familiar with Jesus. They, they knew him before he was famous. Before he was living in the spotlight, they had slept in bunk beds with him. They had worked in the carpenter shop with him. They, they grew up with Jesus. Um, they had the closest proximity to Jesus. They had the most relational experience with him. And how does this group of people evaluate him? Verse 21, he's out of his mind. <laughs> he's out of his mind. In fact, they're embarrassed by him. When, when he comes close, you can tell that the, the language that Mark uses is this rather violent word of going out to seize Jesus. They, they want to get him out of that crowd as fast as possible because, oh my goodness, he's doing it again. Like, this is embarrassing. You can just tell that they go out to, to grab him away from that crowd the way that, the way that you might go out to grab your crazy uncle who's wearing aluminum foil on his head and talking about spaceships. And he got outdoors again and... 
and you're trying to pull him back in, right? You can just tell they're dragging Jesus away, going like, look, I'm sorry. He's, he's kind of, they're embarrassed by him. They think he's out of his mind. Their evaluation of Jesus, the conclusion that they come to is that he's crazy. That's the first group that Mark shows us, that Mark tells us about. The second group, though, in verse 22, is the scribes who come down from Jerusalem. Now, think about it like this. These guys, if, if the local scribes and Pharisees in that region were like the local sheriff's department, these guys are the scribes from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. This is like the FBI and the CIA coming down. These folks drive down into the region in their, in their dark, tinted, windowed SUVs. They get out looking like Agent Smith from the Matrix. These are the folks, these are the top dogs. These folks have heard that there's a disturbance in the region, and they've come to squash it. Um, when scribes from Jerusalem get involved, you know it's serious. And this is a it's, a, it's kind of a preview of what's, of what's coming. But how does this group evaluate Jesus? Verse 22, he's possessed by, by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. That, that name Beelzebul, that was a name that was in use at that time to refer to Satan himself. And so their evaluation is that he's evil. Um, it, he's not just insane, he's in league with the devil. Their evaluation of him, the way that they interpret the evidence, is that he's the opposite of what he's saying. He's not God incarnate. He is the devil incarnate. He is your worst Halloween nightmare come true. So here's the thing. They admitted. They could see that Jesus was utterly unique. Utterly unique. They didn't argue with the fact that he was exercising incredible power, incredible authority. They didn't debate that. But in their minds... It was unthinkable that God would be this close to someone like Jesus who interacted with prostitutes and tax collectors. It was inconceivable that the God that they knew and worshipped would be this close and endorse someone like Jesus who, who did things as serious as breaking the Sabbath to make a man's arm whole again. It was unthinkable that God could be with someone like this, someone who pursued outsiders, someone who hung out with all of the wrong kinds of people and said, these are the folks that I came for. It was unthinkable that God would be like that. So both of these groups, they miss Jesus. They hear the music. It's the greatest music in the world played by the greatest person in the world. And his family and the religious authorities, they miss him because the gospel didn't sound like what they were expecting to hear. So here's the thing. His family, they looked at Jesus and they thought, if God was to become a human being, he wouldn't be this normal. He wouldn't be this much like me. And the scribes and the Pharisees looked at him and they said, if God was to become a human being, he wouldn't be this weak. He wouldn't be this humble. And he wouldn't hang out with these people. They didn't recognize the truth, goodness, and beauty of God staring them in the face in Jesus Christ. What do we have to learn? What do we have to learn from these two groups of people that miss Jesus? I think there's something that we need to take to heart here. We need to take something to heart from his family that missed Jesus because what Mark is showing us here is that it's possible to be in close proximity with Jesus and to have a lot of experience 
with the kinds of people that are around Jesus and to miss him completely. It's possible to grow up with Jesus and not know him. And then from the second group, from these scribes and Pharisees, these, these religious authorities, that we see that Mark's telling us it's possible to know so much about God. And it's possible to live the kind of outward, outwardly religious life that convinces people that we're with God and to be missing Jesus completely. We need to take that to heart. But there's something else that we need to take to heart, too. And, and that's the fact that by the time that Mark ends his gospel and all throughout the New Testament, we see something that Jesus is up to by his Spirit. Jesus loves turning people from both of these categories into his disciples. The very people that miss him, Jesus loves pursuing. Think about it. The book of James, uh, towards the end of your New Testament, is written by probably one of the first people out the door to drag his crazy brother back in, James. James, this is my brother. You can't be the Messiah. You're way too normal and ordinary. You're way too much like me. You're way too human. And Jesus doesn't let him go. So that by the end of James's life, he's willing to say, my testimony is that my brother is God in the flesh, and he came to save me from my sins. And then we see someone from the other category. We have scads of people from this category, but think about it. Most of our New Testament, written by a Pharisee of Pharisees, a, someone who, who interacted with these very people from Jerusalem. His name was Saul, and he hated Jesus because he thought these disciples are way too dangerous and they can't be spreading what Jesus was saying and doing. And so he set out to go squash the rebellion just like these folks did. And Jesus pursued him, didn't let him go. And most of our New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. James and Paul, both, um, both trophies of the amazing grace of Jesus, who loves to pursue the very people that keep missing him. So Mark wants to press in on us that we need to think about how we evaluate Jesus. Who is Jesus to you and what are you doing with him right now? We need to think about how we evaluate Jesus. That's the first thing we see. Secondly, though, we need to see how Jesus evaluates himself. How Jesus evaluates himself. In verses 23 to 27, Jesus responds here to this accusation from these religious authorities, this accusation that he's in league with the devil, that he's actually on Satan's team. And as he does so, he gives us a window into how he understands himself, into how he evaluates who he is and what he's doing. Um, to these religious, to these scribes, to these religious authorities, the only rational way to explain what Jesus was doing was that he was the actual one possessed. When they watched him casting demons out from demon-possessed men, the, the only rational explanation to them was that he was actually the one that was possessed. And Jesus is going to go about pointing out to them that their unbelief is deeply irrational. If that's your only rational explanation for what's going on, it's deeply irrational, Jesus wants them to see. And so he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? How is that possible? You see, their claim was that what we're watching is some kind of internal dispute playing out in Satan's kingdom, some kind of, some kind of demonic civil war. Satan's kingdom is actually unraveling and falling apart from the inside. It's just going to kind of take care of itself. But Jesus says, 
how in the world can you possibly believe that? How can Satan cast out Satan? I want you to hear him asking that question the way that you might ask a question to someone who believes that 2 plus 2 equals 7. They genuinely believe it. And your only response to them, how can, you, how can 2 plus 2 equals 7? How is that possible? That makes no sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? How would he weaken himself? Um, you see, Jesus' point is that Satan is evil, but he's not stupid. And it's an irrational pipe dream to think that Satan and his kingdom are just going to kind of go away on their own. It's irrational to think that the one behind all of the suffering and evil and pain in this world is just going to go away without a fight. It's almost like the Pharisees were thinking, all right, the world's just going to get better because Satan's destroying himself. And, Satan, and Jesus looks around and says, what evidence can you possibly bring up to, to think that the world is getting any better, that sin and pain and suffering are getting any less, and that Satan is any less of a presence in this world? He's saying Satan's kingdom is under attack, but not from the inside. Satan is being threatened, but not by, an, not, not by a civil war, not by an internal dispute. He, he says, this is how I want you to evaluate what you're seeing. What you're watching is a robbery in progress. What you're watching is a cosmic, a, a cosmic crime scene. He says in verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying, that's how I want you to evaluate me. This is who I am and what I've come to do. I'm the one that's greater than your greatest enemy, stronger than the strong man. Someone greater than the prince of darkness has arrived, and I'm here to set captives free, to plunder his house, to bring out those who are chained up in darkness, even to pursue the ones who are running as fast as they can from me the ones who are imprisoned in Satan's house. That's who I am and what I've come to do. He's saying, you are watching play out in front of you a full-scale frontal assault on the kingdom of hell because there are people in there that I love and that I'm not going to give up on. And, and they're worth fighting for and they're worth dying for. That's who I am. That's how I want you to evaluate me, Jesus is saying. Now, there's so many places that we could go here, but there's, there's one thing that I think that, one, one particular direction that I want to go, that I want to invite you to go on with me right now. You know what this means? Jesus is not only inviting us to evaluate him the way that he evaluates himself, to see him as he really is, but as we do that, we learn something about us. We learn the way that Jesus evaluates us. What does he think about us? Um, he calls us something in this passage, plunder. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You know what that means? That means that if you're a Christian this morning, if your testimony is that for however long you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you're a Christian, you're united to Christ by grace, by faith, it means that what you're saying about yourself is that you are stolen property. You are stolen goods. Plunder. 
Um, it means that you are someone who has been reclaimed, rescued, pursued, and brought from one house into another. Not because you were so strong or so smart or so religious, but because someone loved you that much. <laughs> you are someone worth rescuing. Not because of what you could contribute to Jesus, but because Jesus says you are mine. Jesus says that's how I want you to see yourself, because I see you that way. <laughs> he wants us to see things the way they really are. He sees himself as a champion who has run in to his enemy's house, tied up the strong man, bloodied his nose, and put him in the corner so that he could bring out what he truly loves and treasures. You are that worth it. You are that beautiful and treasured and infinitely priceless to the heart of the living God. Not because, not because of what you could contribute, not because of what you were doing for him, or not because he saw of what you could do for him, but because that's the heart of the living God, the one who reaches out to those who are in captivity to bring them into his house as his sons and his daughters. You are more loved than you can possibly imagine. But see, here's the thing. If this is who Jesus is, and how, if this is how he wants us to evaluate him, if this is how he is inviting us to evaluate ourselves, then all of this is setting the stage for verses 28 through 30, where Jesus continues to, to talk about how he's going to evaluate us. These three verses that are both an amazing comfort and a frightening warning. It's really interesting that, that Jesus goes from, from talking about plundering Satan's stronghold in verse 27 to talking about forgiveness of sins. Because in both cases, he's talking about how he evaluates us, how he responds to us. And so that brings us to our third and last point. Mark wants us to think very carefully about how Jesus evaluates us, how Jesus responds to us. In particular, how does Jesus respond to and how does he evaluate when we miss him? All of the ways that we miss him, all the ways that we miss the mark, all the ways that Romans 3, that we, that we don't measure up, <laughs> that we fall short of the glory of God and miss the mark of who we were made to be and miss Jesus when he's staring us in the face. How does Jesus evaluate us? Um, well, he says this in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus says is unpardonable, is unforgivable? Because let's be honest, this sounds scary, it sounds frightening, and it is. <laughs> um, this is what has come to be known as the unforgivable sin. What is it exactly? And is it something that you need to be afraid of right now? <laughs> you see, here's the thing. Um, again, it's not just about how we evaluate Jesus. At the end of the day, it's about how Jesus evaluates us. 
um, Jesus says, there's going to come a moment when I hold you in the balance. When I, when I see if you measure up, when I evaluate all the ways that you've missed me and that you've missed the mark. And he says, when I evaluate your sin, there is one particular thing that can, make, that can put you out of reach of my forgiveness forever. And I think we can sum it up like this. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, it's the conscious, deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. It's the active, willful, self-aware, self-conscious rejection of the grace of God in the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson says it's, it's the stubborn resistance to Jesus that eventually expresses itself in treating him like he's the ultimate evil in this world and in our lives. It's a posture it's not, just a, it's not just an accidental phrase that you utter or a mistake that you make it's a, or a one-time mistake that you make. It's a posture of defiant, self-conscious rejection and unbelief. It's tasting the truth and beauty of God and knowing what you're tasting and saying, I hate it. It's hearing the music played by the greatest person in the world, Jesus announcing the good news of the gospel in the kingdom and saying, I want nothing to do with that. So notice this unpardonable sin, this thing that can put you out of reach of forgiveness, is not, is not doubting that God exists. Um, it's knowing that he exists and rejecting him. And it's not an accidental slip of the tongue. It's, it's not like... It's not like something that you, that you can do in the heat of a moment that you go back and you regret later and you can't find forgiveness. It, it's, not like the, it's not like the foul of targeting in football where you just, get, you just get excited, you commit a foul, you didn't mean to do it, you're sorry, but you're kicked out of the game and you can't come back for the rest of the game. Jesus says no one commits this sin accidentally. It's an intentional, willful, purposeful rejection. No one commits it accidentally. No one commits it not knowing what they're doing. Um, and it's not, it's, not a, it's not even a particularly grievous, terrible kind of sin that you are then later heartbroken about and go back and try to repent from. It, it's, the kind of, it's the kind of posture that you never want to repent of anyway. Repenting and asking forgiveness and receiving grace would be the last thing on your mind because you don't want to be forgiven. That's the kind of posture that Jesus is describing here. I think we could say this is, it's an insider kind of sin. It's an insider, an insider kind of sin because only the people who are inside the visible outward community of faith can reject God like this because, because they're the ones who have tasted and have seen and have gotten a glimpse of what Jesus is like. Notice he's not saying that these are my sheep that, I, that I've called by my name that are then wrenching themselves out of my hand. They're saying, he's saying that there are people within the visible body of Christ who are who are so close but so far away, he's saying. In the, in the words of, of Hebrews 6, it's those who have once been enlightened 
who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They're getting as close as you possibly can without digesting. So close, but so far away. And, and he's saying it's impossible for them to be restored when they have willfully, intentionally, and deliberately rejected the good news of the grace of God and the gospel. Think about it like this. I think Jesus gives us a picture of, what this, of how this looks, a picture of the warning in, uh, in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember this parable of the two brothers that both reject their father. And I would have thought, you know, the, the picture of, the, of, the, of the, the one who commits the unpardonable sin, the one who really puts himself out of reach of forgiveness is the one who says to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. And then he goes and he lives the kind of lifestyle that you would think would make anybody unforgivable. But he comes back. It says he comes to his senses in the far country and he starts walking back home, but his father runs to him and throws the robe around him. And And the parable ends with this feast because the son has come home and he's united to the father and and he's been and he's been restored and healed and forgiven the one guy that I would have thought had put himself out of reach of of Jesus's forgiveness but the point of the parable is that there's another son and he's been living the the right kind of life the whole time and when the father throws this banquet which is the grace of God in Jesus Christ It's a picture of the gospel. The older son sees it, and he can't stand it because he's been living the right kind of life, and he deserves it. And so you can just see the older brother as he's walking outside out of the feast. He he dips his finger in the gravy, and he tastes it, and he can hear the music. He sees it. He smells it. He's there, and he hates it because this is what grace looks like, and I don't want any part of it. That's a picture of what it looks like to reject the grace of God and to put yourself outside of the range of forgiveness because you're putting yourself outside the range of repentance. You are casting away the one person in this whole universe that can actually make your heart capable of being broken and being melted, the Holy Spirit, so that finally the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. Now, obviously, this is a serious warning. It's a serious warning to insiders. You notice that Jesus always has the most gentle invitation to outsiders, but he has the most warnings for the insiders. And we need to hear this, and it needs to get our attention. But here's the thing, and we'll close with this. The fact that there is a posture of unbelief that's that puts yourself outside of the range of forgiveness, that's unforgivable, that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise you. The thing that should surprise you is that Jesus says that there's such a thing as forgivable sin and that it's all of them. Jesus says in verse 28, "'Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man.'" And whatever blasphemies they utter, all of them, 
that there is such a thing as forgivable sin ought to melt your heart with wonder because it shouldn't be like that. (laughs) Just because a sin is forgivable doesn't mean that it's less serious. All sin deserves the wrath and condemnation and judgment of God. But for a sin to be forgivable means that Jesus looks at it and says, I can pay for that. I can be judged in your place. I can be evaluated instead of you. I'll receive your evaluation so that you can receive mine. The good news of the gospel, the wonder of the good news of the gospel is that there is such a thing as forgivable sin, and it's all the ones that you and I I have committed. And And that you can receive the evaluation of Jesus. An evaluation when he looks at you and sees all that you are and all that you've done and all that you're capable of. For him to look at you and say, No condemnation. Forgiven. Right with me. Not guilty. You see, that's what we need to be thinking about. How is Jesus going to evaluate you? How is Jesus evaluating you right now? Are you standing in your own righteousness, in your own sins, or are you standing in the Father's evaluation of Jesus that's available to you for free. May this melt our hearts for the first time or for the 10,000th time right now. The good news of the grace of God, the smile of the Father in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do pray that by your grace, you would melt our hearts by the gospel. Would it become for us the main thing? Would it become, Lord, the lens through which we see ourselves and see you and see this life and this world and what you're doing in it? We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would melt our hearts in new and fresh ways, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time right now. Let us respond in faith to the good news of the grace of God extended to us In Jesus Christ, we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.